Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today uh, is Sunday, uh, December 4th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of our program, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the quest uh, by the Ethiopian government to transform the peace agreement signed with the TPLF in Pretoria and Nairobi into a lasting stability. A flash flood in South Africa has killed numerous people attending a church service. Burkina Faso recently banned the state media in France from broadcasting inside the West African state. And the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, held a meeting today in Abuja, the Federal Republic of Nigeria. In the second hour, we look back at a press conference held in the United States during the 1991 visit of martyred South African revolutionary Chris Honey. And uh, this is uh, being presented uh, as a page from history in light of the recent announcement about parole of Jonas Wallace, uh, who is the confessed assassin of, of uh, Chris Honey, who was killed in April, April 10th of 1993, uh, just um, two years after uh, he, of course, held his press conference uh, in uh, the United States during 1991. And finally, we review the level of police repression in the United States during 1969, uh, from Los Angeles to Chicago, uh, which culminated in the assassinations of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark 53 years ago today. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. We're going to take our musical interlude uh, with the West African band, uh, the African Brothers Band International. Uh, this is from the album title Locomotive Train. Let's listen in. One, two, three, four. Aha. Uh-huh. Let's play with me and you just want 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the African Brothers Band International uh, from uh, the West African state of Ghana. And uh, that was from the album entitled Locomotive Train. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the situation in Ethiopia. It said it's been a month since we heard the least expected joyous news from the Republic of South Africa about the signing of the Succession of Hostilities Agreement, the permanent succession of hostilities agreement, which halted the two years of bloody conflict in northern Ethiopia. Thanks to the African Union, the guns have been silenced for over a month without any disruption. Both negotiating parties have so far fully complied with the commitments they made in the peace agreement and have continued their engagement in a series of dialogues to advance the implementation of the Pretoria Peace Agreement. The permanent uh, ceasefire agreement, uh, which has been in place for a month, uh, has changed the lives of millions of people in war-affected areas in several ways. These changes were unthinkable a week before the peace agreement was signed in Pretoria early uh, last month on November the 2nd. All humanitarian corridors in northern Ethiopia, particularly to the Tigray region, are now open. Uh, Food, medicines, fuel, and other supplies are being channeled to war-affected communities through the four corridors and airlifted uh, terminals in Makele and Shia. This is undoubtedly the most intensive and effective humanitarian relief effort since the conflict began two years ago. As mentioned earlier, in addition to the road transport, humanitarian supplies are being airlifted to the war-affected areas. Various international aid agencies, such as the World Food Program, the Red Cross, and Save the Children have announced the dispatch of huge quantities of humanitarian supplies by air uh, to the war-affected regions. The huge scale of humanitarian operations was said to be the first of their kind since the third round of the conflict broke out last August. Companies providing basic services, including banking, telecom, and power, are resuming delivery of services in several towns in the war-affected areas. Even towns and villages in Tigray, Amhara, and Afar regions are lightening up uh, for the first time since the war started back in 2020. Internally displaced persons that have been sheltering in makeshift camps far away from their villages are now returning home. Militias who left their loved ones to join the war are holding down their guns and returning to their civilian life and reuniting with their families. It is harvest season now. Uh, farmers are returning to their fields to join their co-workers. In North Wolo Zone, it is one of the war-affected areas that saw the most severe devastation and humanitarian crises during the conflict, it has been the scene of several rounds of heavy fighting. Now, with the advent of the secession of hostilities agreement, schools in this area are beginning to open their doors to their peoples. Children, the most vulnerable victims of war for the first time, enter their schoolyards to meet their teachers. The students could not wait until they managed to get exercise books and pencils and the classrooms get fully furnished. Likewise, the teachers could not wait until they get enough chalk and teaching materials. These schools that were ransacked during the war are now open uh, just out of sheer determination 
to return life to normalcy and make the most of the fragile peace sprouting in their locality. Civic societies and philanthropists have a lot of room to play in filling the resources gaps in rehabilitation and communities in the war-affected areas. And you can read this article in its entirety over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Other news uh, taking place, at least nine people have died and eight others were missing in the Republic of South Africa after a flash flood swept away members of a church congregation of the Long Juske River in Johannesburg. Rescue officials said earlier today the dead and missing were all part of the congregation, which was conducting religious rituals along the river. Yesterday, officials said, rescue workers reported finding the bodies of two victims a day uh, and another seven bodies when the search and recovery mission resumed earlier this morning. The teams were interviewing people from the congregation to establish how many others were unaccounted for. Religious groups frequently gather along the Juskai River, uh, which runs past townships such as Alexandria and the east of Johannesburg for baptisms and ritual cleansings. And you can read this article as well uh, over on the Pan-African Newswire website. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. In West Africa, in the nation of Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso's military government has suspended the broadcast of France's state-owned Radio France International, accusing it of having released a message from a terrorist leader to intimidate the population of the West African nation. Government spokesman Jean-Emmanuel Wadriago has said, according to Wadriago, uh, yesterday's statement, uh, the RFI spread a message to intimidate the public attributed to a terrorist leader, which, according to Borkanabi authorities, contributes to terrorist activities against millions of Borkanabi citizens who came together to defend their homeland. The government also accused the broadcast of featuring in its press review some false information suggesting that the interim president, Ibrahim Traore, had said there had been an attempted coup against him. In view of the above, uh, government has decided to immediately suspend the broadcast Radio France International programs throughout the national territory until further notice, Wadriogo said. RFI said later on Saturday that it deplored this decision, calling the action of the Borkinabi government totally unfounded. The broadcaster pointed out that the suspension was ordered without prior notice and without implementing the procedures stipulated in the Radio France International's broadcasting agreement with the country's authorities. The owner of Radio France International, uh, France Médias Mondes, will explore ways to restore the radio broadcasting in the country, according to Radio France International. In October, Ibrahim Traore was sworn in as head of the transitional government of Burkina Faso in front of the country's constitutional council. In late September, media in Burkina Faso reported that Lieutenant Colonel Paul Henri Santiago D'Amiba, the leader of an interim government who came to power through a coup earlier this year, was ousted by a group of military officers led by Traore in what became the second military takeover in the country within a period of eight months. And finally, 
the 62nd Ordinary Session of the Authority of Heads of State and Government of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, uh, was held today, uh, December 4th, 2022, in uh, the West African uh, political capital of Abuja, Federal Republic of Nigeria. The session of the Heads of State uh, will be presented uh, by a foundation-laying ceremony of the new ECOWAS headquarters building uh, funded uh, by the People's Republic of China. The heads of state will be considering reports from the Council of Ministers meeting, which held from December 1st to the 2nd, 2022, in Abuja and other issues affecting the region during uh, that session. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding the segment of our program, We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites Throughout the world, the Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That will be at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week. <laughs> Be my friend. When he's around, I can't do 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today. Sunday, uh, December 4th, uh, 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, That was the studio sound of uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, along with uh, Buddy Miles on drums and uh, Billy Cox on bass with a tune entitled Look Over Yonder. And uh, right now we want to go back uh, to 1991 uh, to a press conference that was held here in the United States uh, by South African Communist Party and African National Congress leader Chris Honey um, in April of 1991 uh, during his visit to the United States, the second most highest uh, ranking leader of the ANC who had visited uh, after uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, who had visited uh, in June of 1990. Uh, just uh, four months uh, after his release uh, from 27 and a half years of incarceration uh, in apartheid South Africa. Let's listen to this press conference. Uh, two years later, uh, Chris Honey uh, was assassinated uh, in South Africa on April 10th of 1993. Uh, two people were arrested and uh, sentenced to death uh, in his uh, assassination when the African National Congress took power in 1994. Uh, one of the first measures uh, they enacted uh, in a constitution that was um, agreed upon in 1995 uh, was the abolition of the death penalty by the state. Um, since that time period, uh, the uh, Wallace, Yanis uh, Wallace, and uh, also Clive Derby Lewis, uh, Lewis had been given medical parole, and uh, Wallace uh, was supposed to have been paroled last Thursday, according to the uh, South African Constitutional Court, which decided uh, that uh, he could be paroled. Of course, this created a firestorm among uh, the South African Communist Party, African National Congress, and other uh, political interests uh, inside of South Africa who condemned uh, the decision of uh, the South African Constitutional Court. So uh, right now, we want to go back to 1991 and listen to this press conference uh, by Chris Honey. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I think we'll get started. Welcome to our morning newsmaker. Our guest will have a statement, and then he'll answer your questions. He said that he could be with us until 10 or a bit after. Uh, after that, he has to leave for an appointment. My name's Jack Reynolds. I have a media consulting and production company here in Washington. Our guest today, Chris Honey, is a man of many parts. He's the highest-ranking member of the African National Congress to visit the U.S. since Nelson Mandela's trip last June. Mr. Honey is a member of the ANC Executive Committee and Chief of Staff of the ANC's military wing called Spear of the Nation. He's one of the younger uh, generation of the organization's leaders and is particularly popular with the younger, more militant uh, segment of the anti-apartheid movement both in and out of South Africa. Mr. Honey is a Latin and English scholar who holds a BA degree from Rhodes University. He's also survived several assassination attempts, spent time in jail in Botswana, and for years he traveled secretly in and out of South Africa. Life is never dull for Mr. Honey. The South African government is now threatening to remove his indemnity from persecution for his political actions. That indemnity expires April 30th, and if it's not renewed, 
uh, it would make him liable to arrest and trial upon his return to South Africa. Mr. Hani's visit to our country comes at a critical time since the U.S. Congress is scheduled to hold hearings on April 30th to assess the impact of sanctions mandated by the Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986, and there is a debate about whether those sanctions should be lifted or maintained. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Hani. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is indeed a pleasure for me to address this press conference this morning. It is just over a year since the declared government unbanned the African National Congress, the PAC, the party, and other organizations. It was an act of courage on his part after so many years of naked repression by his predecessors. We believe that the crisis which gripped our country for so many years at least made the Clark a realist and forced him to take the only option that was available, namely to, to unbend the ANC and to release the leaders of the ANC and to allow, even on a temporary basis, those who were in exile to come back. I think it is important to assess this period. What has happened in South Africa within this year since the ANC was unbanned? For the first time in our history, leaders of a liberation movement engaged a racist government in discussions on a basis of equality. We discussed the critical problems facing the country in an attempt to resolve the crisis of apartheid and racism and to work out a new dispensation in our country. And that dispensation, of course, in our view, is a united, non-racial, and democratic South Africa. I think generally there's broad agreement on this issue. In their statements, the leaders of the Nationalist Party have expressed their commitment to a non-racial democratic South Africa. There are differences about the modalities towards this objective. The ANC is putting forward the idea of an interim government and a constituent assembly. It is our view that since the government is both a player and a referee, that position would not guarantee us impartiality. We had earlier in the year called for an all-party congress where the different groups would meet to discuss the broad principles of a new constitution. There was an agreement on this between the ANC and the Nationalist Party government although the PAC and other organizations had reservations. 
about this. We, as, as I indicated, ladies and gentlemen, there have been two major meetings with the government so far, culminating in the Khrutevskir and Pretoria Minutes. There have been various working groups composed of representatives of the government and the ANC. Agreements were hammered out on the release of political prisoners and the return of exiles. As you are aware, we also made a commitment to suspend armed actions and related activities. But as press people, you know that there's been an alarming escalation of violence in our townships, especially in Natal and the Reef, for the last eight months. Statistics come out with chilling figures of the deaths, mostly of black South Africans. This violence has generated a lot of tension between the regime and ourselves. It is our view that the regime has not used the security forces to stop acts of violence mainly directed against black communities. It is also our view that at least on two occasions, the police themselves have participated in violence against the people. We see a government which is not taking adequate steps to punish police officers who connive at acts of violence. We are also very worried and indeed agonized by the existence of uh, CCBs, Ascaris, Kofut, and Battalion 32 in our country. We feel that these groups have got a right-wing orientation with very deep animosity towards the African National Congress. It is indeed our view that though the government is talking to us, it wants to talk to a weakened ANC and a fragmented African National Congress. It was with these fears that we addressed an open letter to President Clark demanding, amongst other things, that he should legislate against the public display of the so-called cultural weapons, that he should disband <laughs> the units I've referred to, Ascaris, Kofut, CCBs, etc., and that the disbanding should be done by an independent commission. We also call upon him to dismiss two ministers we hold responsible in failing to curb the ongoing violence. In that open letter, we said that if our demands are not complied with, we shall pull out of the ongoing talks. Another area of concern on the part of the African National Congress is the issue of sanction. White politicians, including the government in our country, feel that they've done enough 
to warrant the lifting of sanctions. They say they've already committed themselves to the scrapping of apartheid. And indeed, on paper, at any rate, they've, re they've repealed some laws. The victims of apartheid, the ANC, PAC, Party, COSATO, etc., are saying very little has, has happened in our country. Apartheid is in, still in place. We are still ruled by a white minority. And that we have not reached a stage where changes are irreversible. We are saying it is premature to lift sanctions. And that sanction should be lifted when we, who have been oppressed and who are still being oppressed, come out and say we have now begun to negotiate in our country. So far there are no negotiations. We are trying very hard to create a climate of negotiation. Part of uh, my visit here, my tour, is to speak to Americans and say to them, please don't leave sanctions at this stage. They are an important area of pressure to make the regime move. I've had discussions with officials in the State Department and the White House, and we have put that message, we have conveyed that message to the administration. Finally, I want to say we are serious about negotiations, and of course we initiated negotiations. We have made important commitments towards negotiations, including the suspension of armed action. We feel that South Africa would be a better place if its problems are resolved in a peaceful manner. After years of destruction, after years of killing, after years of the imprisonment of our people. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I think I should give you a chance to ask questions. In the back. Uh, um, on your open letter to the government and your demands, it's clear that If you could give your name and organization when you ask the question. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Mr. Lero. You are saying that uh, it's quite clear, and of course the press has, has uh, equally stated that uh, those two ministers will not be sacked. We are waiting for a response from the government, a considered response, on all the issues that we have raised in that open letter. We have stated that uh, we want a reasonable response because our demands are reasonable. 
we shall consider the totality of the response before we decide on any concrete action. So it will be premature for me to say, if my land and the flock are not dismissed, we shall do the following. We shall have to sit down as a movement on or just after April, I mean, April, May the 9th, rather, to consider our responses. It is not for an individual like me to say we shall respond in the following manner. Coming to your second question, the issue of self-defense units. I believe that uh, our decision to form self-defense units is as a result of our perception that our communities are not protected by the South African police. Now, it is a natural thing, and I think it is natural law, that when you feel threatened and endangered, you resort to your own methods of protecting yourself. It's like, for instance, if I'm attacked at my place and my family is in danger, I would not fold my hands. I would have to defend the family as best as I can. I do not want to simplify the issue. I understand your concerns and the concerns even of the American government. They were raised at our discussions yesterday. People are, afla are afraid of a Lebanon type of situation. We do not want to have private self-defense units accountable only to the ANC. We have gone around to discuss this issue with a number of organizations and with the communities affected. And I want to assure you that uh, it is not just an aberration of the ANC. There are demands on the ground from the victims of violence that the ANC should do something about this violence. Because the perception of the affected communities is that the police are not defending. Now you are asking me whether these actions are not going to degenerate into civil war, whether there won't be any provocation and what would be the guidelines. We are going to be sitting down, and we have already sat down rather, to define the guidelines. The self-defense units are going to be totally defensive. We won't go and attack police stations or police and the army or blow up installations. We shall so organize that when some of these people or all these people come and attack, the people are in a position to rebuff those attacks in order for the attackers to feel that, you see, they are not going to have, uh, they are not rather going to attack with impunity. I mean, this sort of thing is not like, you know, conducting an experiment in a laboratory. We must make sure that we strengthen discipline and accountability. And strong measures or stern measures should be taken in order not to allow for the degeneration of self-defense units. We are also ready to discuss with the government the whole question of self-defense units. Because we want to hammer an understanding, especially on the part of the whites who do not understand the violence taking part in the township in our country because they don't stay there. We feel that, you see, whites have organized some defense for themselves in the form of some civil defense units or even neighborhood watches. 
precisely because they want to protect themselves against crime and criminals. And the black communities, as far as we are concerned, are equally entitled to take measures to establish defense units. And we would like the government in our country to have that sort of sensitivity, which they display, display rather, towards the white community. Question here. I'm sorry, the lady here in the front row. From Southscan. Um, could you tell us uh, who all you met in the administration, in the White House, and the State Department, and what were the issues uh, discussed? Um, and also, could you clarify um, who's sponsoring your trip? Because some elements uh, of the South African press have said that it's only sponsored by the Communist Party of the, of the United States. Uh, thank you, madam. Uh, Yesterday, we had two meetings at different times, one with the State Department, the delegation coming from the State Department was led by Mr. Jeff Davido, former ambassador to Zambia, a man quite knowledgeable about the situation in Southern Africa. We explained our own perspectives and especially dwelling on the issue of negotiations, explained the basic reasons behind our open letter to President de Klerk, and we explained and informed him on the current violence escalating in our townships. We said something about the interim government and the constituent assembly, as well as uh, raising the issue of sanctions. They asked a number of questions on the issue of self-defense units and explained their fears about the possible negative effects of these self-defense units. They explained their position on, on sanctions and uh, that, you see, there was a possibility that some, some sanctions would be lifted. And, of course, we equally, were equally emphatic in making an appeal to them not to rush with the lifting even of some sanctions. With uh, Mr. Fraser, it was the same approach, explaining to him in a detailed manner about the situation in our country as well as on the issue of sanctions. He also explained, like Mr. Davido, the position of the American government. Certainly they, they were telling us that they are in a process of interlocution with all the parties in our country, with the regime in Pretoria, with us and other groups. I must say the talks were very friendly and frank, and I, I discern personally a serious concern on their, on, their, on their part to make whatever contribution that they can make within their own limitations to bring about the proper solution of the problems of our country. Coming to the question of the sponsorship of my tour, our tour is sponsored by a coalition of groups in this country. Amongst those groups, of course, is the People's Weekly World, 
the paper of the American Communist Party. There are also a number of coalition groups. When we were invited, of course, we, we jumped in accepting it because this enabled us to have a chance to inform the American people. I'm a member of the South African Communist Party, which has had very close and fraternal relations with the Communist Party of the USA. Whilst we're still banned and operating from exile, we worked together very closely. And for us, we don't have any problems about the inclusion of the American Communist Party in this paper in the sponsorship of the talk. Question here. Yes, uh, Brad Phillips with Fairfax Public Access. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, by members of your organization as well as yourself about political, political prisoners and exiles. Uh, are any of these people uh, responsible or associated with necklace murders, car bombings, or the assassination of moderate black leaders who have uh, rejected the armed struggle of the ANC? Well, amongst us in the course of uh, prosecuting the armed struggle, our comrades who have certainly been involved in carrying out operations using car bombs, limpets, explosives, Comrades who have used mortars and 122mm rockets against enemy targets. Because you must remember, we're fighting a war, and those weapons were certainly used in carrying out that war. Their comrades were involved in planting landmines against enemy targets. And in some cases, I want to be frank, civilians were caught in the crossfire. War is like that. I'm sure the recent experience of the Americans and their allies in Iraq will, will show that as they were trying to deal with Saddam Hussein, thousands of innocent civilians were caught in the crossfire. Unfortunately, that is the ugly side of, uh, of war. And we derive no pleasure in, the, in that sort of thing. Moderate leaders, I don't know what you mean by moderate leaders, Apartheid in oppressing us co-opted many blacks who were equally instrumental in our oppression. There were community councillors in the townships, for instance, who were carrying out the instructions of apartheid and were oppressing our people, uh, evicting them from their houses and making apartheid to entrench itself. Some operations were carried out against some com community councils in the course of that war. Of course, presently, there is suspension of armed action. And uh, we, as the ANC so far since August, have not instructed any of our combatants to carry out any military action. You said that you were... Uh, told by the State Department delegation that they were considering lifting some sanctions, it was possible that they would lift some sanctions. Did they give a time frame? Did they say which kind of sanctions they were considering lifting? Well, they did not go into specifics because of a uh, time constraint. And uh, uh, we got the impression that uh, in terms of uh, time frame, they were considering doing so probably in another two months or three months' time. Of course, 
this was going to come before Congress, it would certainly be discussed, and I'm sure a number of views would be expressed. They were not detailed as to what sanctions and when these sanctions would be lifted. The young lady here. Uh, to follow up on this question, um, we were told uh, a while back that uh, the only way the administration would recommend to Congress lifting sanctions was if the political prisoners were released by the end of this month. Um, was that discussed? Is there any possibility that that could still happen by the end of this month? And also, uh, in your talks with members of Congress, I, I assume you've met them, what, what is your impression of which way the, the wind is blowing on the sanctions issue? Well, I've not yet met any member of Congress. I'm likely to meet Senator Kennedy sometime this morning. Um, you know that, uh, of course, the American administration has pointed out that certain things have got to be done by the Pretoria government before sanctions are lifted. They have referred to the release of political prisoners and the return of exile. And they have said that if five conditions or four conditions, I don't know, I don't know out of how many, are met, they will consider lifting sanctions. Of course, we are intensifying the campaign to stop that because so far, not all political prisoners have been released. When I left South Africa, 41 had been released from Robben Island out of, five, out of 41. Out of 500 or so on Robben Island. But political prisoners are in the states, 12 South Africa, there are some in Polsmo, some in Johannesburg, others in other small prisons, 12 South Africa. Uh, people who fit the definition of political prisoners as agreed upon between the Pretoria regime and ourselves. Uh, the Americans, of course, are saying that they don't want to shift the goalposts. If most of the conditions are met, they want to lift some of the sanctions. As to whether the regime will uh, meet the April 30th deadline, I do not know. But I'm told they, they feel that they will meet that April 30th deadline. The, I think the administration has a feeling that uh, the deadline will be met and uh, because I think in private discussions with Pretoria they have been given that assurance and General I mean, Kubikuti and Minister Kubikuti and others have actually said they, are, they, they think that they will meet that deadline. We shall wait and see uh, if that deadline is met or not. Sure. Um, Simon Barber, Business Day. Uh, in the 1990 annual State Department Human Rights Report uh, refers to cr continued credible and reliable reports that uh, the ANC continued to abuse and imprison dissidents in Tanzania and Zambia. There was not any mention made of Angola in this particular report. Can you comment on that first? Secondly, on a more specific issue, last year uh, there were several ANC detainees who returned to South Africa, including a Mr. Sipo Polungwa, who was murdered in Transkei shortly after a press conference at which he had revealed uh, abuses that had gone on in ANC camps. Uh, just on the same issue, can you tell us when the people that the ANC are holding and that you have admitted are holding in camps will be returned to South Africa? 
Uh, I'll begin with the question of detainees held by the ANC and provide all of you with a bit of background. I don't want to go into details. I said earlier that the Pretoria regime and ourselves have been locked in a bitter and bloody warfare. Certainly Pretoria has imprisoned not just a few hundreds but thousands of us on Robben Island, Paulsmoor and other prisons. Secondly, Pretoria has executed some of our captured comrades, Solomon Matangu, Mkwerane, Musolodi, Mtawo, and they have sentenced to life imprisonment. Thirdly, Pretoria has sent, has sent murder squads across the borders of South Africa to eliminate us. I said yesterday, or day before yesterday, that I was one of the victims of the murder squads on more than one occasion. Kabi certainly was eliminated by them in Harare, and so many of our people have been killed in Khaburoni, in Swaziland, in Mozambique, in Lesotho, and many other, and other centers. In that war, Pretoria has been sending scores and scores of agents to kill and poison us in the camps. We have intercepted and caught some of those agents. Dirk Kutier, whose credibility, despite what the Harms Commission said, has been accepted by Justice Krigler, that for years Pretoria has, has maintained a place called Flag Plus, which was a center for secret operations against us, and the activities included poisoning of ANC members. We had to defend ourselves to survive. We arrested people, including Olivia Forsyth, who is a confessed agent of the regime. There are many others who confessed. We had to keep them somewhere, and they were kept in a camp in, in northern Angola. That camp is no longer there since we moved from Angola. Over the last few years, we have been releasing many of these people. Some are studying and they have been reintegrated in our movement. They have been pardoned by us. Twala and the so-called dissidents who came back from South Africa were also released and sent to Tanzania. They fled to Kenya. That's why they came back to South Africa about a year ago. We are in the process. As soon as the necessary logistics are organized to release those people and we shall give them an option either to remain with us abroad or come back to South Africa. We shall certainly not prevent a single one of them from coming back to South Africa if those people so, so desire. Coming to the question of Pungula, he came back with a group and went to the Transkai and was killed in the Transkai. That killing was not organized by the African National Congress. Of all those dissidents, he's the only one who has been killed so far. But he was not killed on the instructions of the ANC as an organization. We made a public statement on this issue. And I don't think it is fair to blame us for the killing of, of, of Sipopungula in the Transkai. The Transkai government carried out its own investigations. I don't know the outcome of those investigations. And it was willing to discuss this issue with the South African regime. So 
All I can say is that uh, we cannot be held responsible for the killing of, of Pungula. Question over here. Peter Hammond's Frontline Fellowship. Mr. Arnie, um, for years ANC has claimed to represent the vast majority of black South Africans, yet despite the massive international media coverage and the foreign funding, substantial foreign funding you receive and the aggressive membership drive this last year, um, according to press reports, the ANC has failed to sign up more than 200,000 members, yet the Encarta Freedom Party of uh, Dr. Mangasudu Budalezi has over 2.2 million paid-up card-carrying members. How then can the ANC continue to claim to represent the majority of what is in reality not even 1% of the people of South Africa? And secondly, as your organization has publicly allied itself with American foes such as dictators Castro, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi, why then should American taxpayers contribute tax dollars to your organization, which is involved in violence? Well, I think the comparison uh, is very unfair. Inkata has been operating openly, I don't know for how many years, unharassed and unpersecuted by the state. In fact, the leader of Inkata Freedom Party is the chief minister in a homeland created by Pretoria. The resources of that homeland are at his disposal. He has got offices in Ulundi. He gets his salary from the South African government. Most of his ministers are paid by the South African government. They have never been arrested, persecuted, or banned, banished, or exiled like ourselves. Unlike Mandela, he has enjoyed all the space to mobilize Mandela, until last year, was in prison for 27 years. All the senior leadership of the ANC for information has never been able, until last year, to come back and build an organization inside South Africa. So I think the comparison is rather unfortunate. Inkata is a sweetheart organization loved by Pretoria and not harassed at all. And uh, they have never been involved in a struggle, in my own memory against the South African government. They are like a church, as far as I'm concerned, which goes every day unmolested to preach the word of God. They preach the word of freedom without taking any action to ensure that freedom comes about. Then moving from there, I think your statistics are rather outdated. The ANC so far has got more than half a million members, and there's a drive to recruit more members into the ANC. I think that's an achievement considering that we started building the ANC seriously in August last year. Yes, we were unbanned in February. But then you have got to build a core of leaders. They had just come out of prison. Others were abroad. We had to set interim structures. You must remember we're an underground movement. An underground, an underground movement has got to be very, very small to, to survive. Now we're building a mass movement. And for us to have reached all the parts of South Africa in eight months is a, an amazing achievement. You know, the membership in the Transkai alone is close to 30,000 within eight months. Inkata has had, I don't know when it was formed, but I think it has had more than 10 years to build itself openly and unharassed. And uh, why does the world expect us within eight months to have, you know, 2 million or 2.2 million paid up membership? But your own papers in South Africa, at any rate, I think uh, Mr. Bob and others will agree, they were, they've been paused. 
to show that more South Africans, and especially blacks, support the ANC more than 42%, and only 6% support Inkata. Those are not Mandela's polls or the polls of Maibuye or the African communists, but bourgeois papers like the Star and others. Even Ken Owen, who doesn't like us, agrees that uh, we enjoy majority support. Now, I think uh, there is no doubt that we are a mass national movement. We are not a natal-based or a K-based organization. We have got membership throughout the country, amongst all Africans, Zulus, Tosas, Swanas, amongst Indians, people of Asian origin, mixed race, and also amongst whites. They might be, there might be few whites in the ANC, but they are there. We are working closely, we are in alliance with a massive trade union federation which supports the broad outlines of the, I mean, broad policies of the movement. That is Kwasato. Coming to a question, how can the ANC, if it uh, associates and works with what you call dictators, Fidel Castro, Saddam Hussein, I don't, or Gaddafi, you know the ANC is involved in a very serious struggle to overthrow apartheid. In that struggle, it needs the support of the international community. The people you call dictators have helped us with training. Poor Chuba has helped us uh, in training our people and has provided equipment. It has given us scholarships, scholarships to our students to study in Havana and other cities. Why should we re reject that assistance? When the Americans were not so forthcoming in terms of training us and giving us anything, at that time, the American government. Gaddafi has done the same thing to us, not only us, but the PAC, training and funding us as well. Those who suffer can't afford the luxury of not accepting you know, assistance from those who are willing to, 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 support, to support us. Uh, you know, the Americans must look back into their own history. You did not hesitate to work with Stalin against Hitler. You were sending shipments of food and material via Mumansky and other ports in the Soviet Union in order to fight Hitler. Why should it be reprehensible on the part of the ANC to do the same, to have alliances so that it wages a successful struggle? I think we are unfair to the African National Congress. And I think uh, the American taxpayers must not support us on the basis of choosing friends for us. I think you must respect our decisions to have our own friends. Please don't dictate to us. We must decide who our friends are. I think it's a bit of arrogance to tell us with whom we should associate. I mean, that's really patronizing, and I think the ANC doesn't like that. Question right here. Dick Schwartz, the Burger, Cape Town. Which economic program do you suggest for South Africa? I got the impression yesterday that you depended on the communist program yeah. to execute the redistribution of wealth which you would like to see. Is that right? Well, I'm happy to meet you. I have got a Kiptonian background as well. I grew up in Stellenbosch and I enjoyed my stay there for a long time. Uh, which economic program? Well, I think South Africans are discussing which is the best economic program to implement in a post-apartheid South Africa? <laughs> Even non-Marxists are agreed that uh, something has got to be done about the redistribution of wealth in our country. I know for, for at, at any rate, I know that Professor Samvite Blanche 
of Stellenbosch, who for a long time was a member of the Nationalist Party, I don't know if he still is, also agrees that uh, in addressing the imbalances in our country, something has got to be done, something drastic. <laughs> you know, we want to bring about social harmony in our country. And that social harmony is impossible if we do not redistribute wealth and resources. I'm not referring to vulgar equalization. All I'm saying is that every person in South Africa, at least we should try, that should be our objective, should have at least three meals a day, should have shelter, not uh, the squatter's shacks, no compounds. Every child must have access to proper schools. We must have the same medical facilities. How do we do that? I don't think we, we South Africans must look for models, but I think uh, we have got a duty. If we have got to stop you know, the current divisions, if we have got to heal the wounds of uh, apartheid divisions, to balance things. Now, you are an African. Huh? You have got your own history. You are part of uh, the important national groups in our country. At one time, you were disadvantaged there. The British treated you as a second-class citizen. You were not given, your, your language was not given the same status as English. You were an ordinary farmer in the 30s and 40s and very poor, most of you. We are exactly in the same position as blacks. You know, I went back where I was born, where my mother is, as soon as I got into the country. She stays in only one hut. When I had to sleep there, she had to negotiate with neighbors to provide his newly, her newly arrived son with some shelter. I'm just using me as an example. Most of us are in that position, most blacks, in the, in the, in the rural areas and in the townships. Now, apartheid has decided not to provide housing for us. Now, you will nationalize. It's only now that you are speaking about privatization. You nationalize ESCO, ISCO, SES. You worked out affirmative programs to uplift the Africana. You help them with heavy subsidies to buy farms so that they should have land. The ANC says, equally, emerging out of a disastrous situation which has impoverished millions, the state must intervene. We cannot leave it to, to private enterprise to try to, read, to distribute resources. And certainly we want to nationalize enterprises like ESCOM, ESCO, SES. But at the same time, we say we are for a mixed economy. And in doing so, we must also take into consideration not to repeat the mistakes of Eastern Europe and Africa. I think we're all agreed about economic growth so that you know, more jobs should be there. And I'm sure when we nationalize, we shall take that into consideration. But essential services, those things are needed by the people, like postal services, transport, electricity, a government must ensure 
that you see Mr. and Mrs. Average also get a, a slice of the cake. But uh, we shall allow private enterprise to continue in our country. We shall, we shall continue to accept foreign investment. But of course, every government sits down to draw guidelines so that uh, in the final analysis, the operations of uh, conglomerates like uh, Anglo-American, Anglo-American for instance, has, uh, has committed a crime against our people. I'm sure you have been to the compound. Despite, you know, the accumulation of profits, you know, the, the housing they have built for our people is not fit for animals. And the conditions, discriminatory conditions and labor practices are terrible. We as a government must ensure, we must uh, set up guidelines for the operation, I mean, for operations of private enterprises as well as multinational corporations. Yes, profits will be allowed to be taken out, but at the same time they've got an obligation towards the social upliftment of those who are participating in the operations of their companies. I think this is only, people say that nationalization has not worked anywhere. We, we don't have that history. We know that the British after the war nationalized, I'm sure the French as well. There's a bit of nationalization in the Scandinavian countries as well. Our nationalization, in fact, is guided by a concern to bring about social justice. Our capitalism, I said so when I was speaking yesterday, has never demonstrated a social conscience. I don't know the situation in other countries. That's why, as I say, we are for a mixed economy. But again, I want to assure, to assure whites in South Africa, we have no intentions to nationalize private property. They will remain in their houses. You know, some people are so, you know, are so simplistic. They think that next time there's an ANC government, we're going to be rushing to grab people's cars. We're going to be grabbing people's houses. In our constitutional guidelines, we are emphatic that private property is private property, and every South African will retain his or her private property. Uh, and I think this, this assurance should be satisfying to, to those who possess houses, beautiful cars, and that sort of thing. We are only concerned about the commanding heights of our economy. Hang on, let's get it to here. And first. Um, I wonder if you could comment for me on the relationship between the ANC and the Pan-Africanist Congress and the importance of uh, progressive whites in South Africa as well as the United States to respect the range of leadership in Azania. Well, after years of uh, differences between the PAC and the ANC, I don't want to go into that history, but the leadership of both organization, organizations have recognized the vital necessity to build a united front. We had a number of uh, meetings within South Africa, and those meetings resulted in a major meeting in Harare, which was an outstanding success in our view. We defined areas of common agreement. The PAC and the ANC are agreed on a constituent assembly. We agree that uh, this government has no right to rule us. There's a need for democratic elections so that a, a new democratic government should, should emerge in our country. We're having now a, a very important meeting in August to discuss questions of uh, strategy and, uh, and tactics. We have referred to progressive whites in our country. As you know, we're a non-racial organization. 
in the leadership of the ANC at different levels. We've got all sorts of people. In the national executive of the ANC, you, we have the men, some whites don't like, George Lovo. We have Ronnie Castles. At a number of levels, we've got people like Raymond Satna, Albi Sex, so on and so forth, because I think we're the only truly non-racial political organization. Well, I think President Clark is learning very fast from us as he's opening the Nationalist Party doors as well. But we started this process years ago. But we're proud that now other parties are following suit. Uh, we, we are very much keen that our, that our South African white counterparts, or compatriots rather, should be inside the ANC. Because the future of our country lies in non-racialism, in building a real non-racial country where we should forget about the color of a, of, of a person's skin. We believe, for instance, we should cultivate this, this thing right from school, primary schools, nursery schools, and in a small way, gradually prepared, some schools are being reopened. And I think, you see, this is commendable. To break the racial divide, for South Africans to be together and talk to one another, because this has not happened for many, many years. Nobody should feel threatened in our country. You know, before, there would be the white areas, white suburbs, in convenient places. There would be the townships 30 kilometers from the city. You know, in order to get to town from Orlando, in uh, Soweto, where I stay, I've got to make sure that at least uh, 30 minutes are spent, you know, commuting between Orlando and Johannesburg. Surely we want to bring that to an end. And that is not going to happen by, you know, enforcing people to move into the suburbs. So we've got to build more houses. We've got to encourage people. We're not going to legislate, you see, for a mechanical mixing of people. Because what is important is education and reorientation of the people of South Africa in order to so that they accept themselves, they look upon themselves as people of South Africa, not as white, black, Indian, or colored. I think that is the major task facing all of us, to build a contented, united, non-racial society. Question here. Hey, David Brown of the Johannesburg Star. The newspaper you described as bourgeois. Uh, the, the ANC and the others, it's well known, are pretty disgruntled with the South African media. Could you say what the nature of the complaint is yeah. and what the ANC government or dominated government would like to do about it in the post-apartheid South Africa? And secondly, if I may ask, did the administration in your talks yesterday show any sign of flexibility or sympathy towards your view on sanctions or are they going to go ahead? Well, I think the word disgruntled is rather too strong. I think we've criticized the press, but equally I want to say, and I said this in an interview with New Era in Cape Town, that the press has an important role to play in society. They've got to inform the people about what is happening. They've got to critically assess the ANC, Nationalist Party, Inkata, and all players in the South African situation. We don't want a press which is going to indulge in acts of adulation, saying what a great leader Mandela is.
I don't think that sort of psychophantic press is useful. Uh, but I think sometimes the press has been rough with us. One day I was in Cape Town and I read an editorial in the Cape Times which said, Ani and Malan. And uh, the first sentence uh, was rather unfair, which said the highly ambitious Ani is being helped by the outburst of Malan. Well, unfortunately, I've never met the editor. And I don't know why he should use that epithet when he's describing me. But I suppose that uh, there is that's the prerogative of the press to, see, to say whether we have got a big nose or a big head, even if you don't have it. Uh, we believe that uh, they, have, they have not treated us sympathetically. Even over the years, this is history. You must remember that invariably the press sided with the government and with all the pernicious legislation for a long time against us. You regarded us generally as terrorists, as bloody people. When we were attacked in the Sudan, Mozambique, you said to Malan and his troops, well done, our boys have, have knocked them, have knocked them out. They will never be able to continue again. They have been hit for a six. You never treated us as individuals, as human beings. We had a noble cause. With, with, but there were exceptions, I think. I don't want to generalize too much. But I think that was the view. For instance, some of you are predicting a doomsday that South Africa will be a real wasteland if the ANC rules that country. And you don't say that South Africa has been reduced to its present position by the Nationalist Party government. You don't treat us sympathetically when we cry and say that we see we are being killed, we are being attacked. You think we are behaving like spoiled brats. In fact, people like Ken Owen are actually enjoying attacking us every weekend. Ken Owen on Sunday, I think most of the time it's two-thirds of what he says is, is a tirade against the African National Congress. We don't want to see a, a situation where we feel that uh, the press doesn't like us. Because that situation generates negative attitudes on the part of the ANC, and I don't think that is helpful. I think there should be a balanced and objective assessment of the ANC. In the same way as I think we are objective about the government. You, very few papers, there are papers you see would uh, describe Malan in the way sometimes I'm described, in the way sometimes Paolo Jordan is described, or in the way that Slovo is described. We are projected, you know, as people who are not reasonable, where does, the paper, where does the press get the view that uh, the, the demands made by the ANC are as a result of the hawks in the ANC? You don't, uh, you, don't, you don't see the ANC sitting down like an organization discussing openly and at the end taking a collective discuss, I mean, decision as a result of uh, you know, openness. I mean, that was a decision taken as a result of a consensus. But again, the whipping boys, Jordan, Slovo, Honey, pressurizing Mandela to, 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 to write an open letter to the clerk. All personal I'm, I'm appealing, and I don't, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not prescribing, you see, to the press. We need the press, you see. It should inform us as much as possible. The press, for instance, 
I, I don't like, for instance, I mean, today I was reading a, a press transcript from home, which says, Inkata, which is largely Zulu, and the ANC, which is largely supported by the Corsas. I mean, that is not true again. The ANC is supported by all the national groups, I mean, all blacks in South Africa. And if you go to statistics, you'll find that probably 70%, 65, 70% Corsa, 65%, Sutu, 55%, Swana. I mean, the latest statistics say that 58% of Zulus support the ANC. And you are projecting an image that the ANC is a tribal organization. When we eschewed tribalism years ago, for, lo for a long time there was not a single Corsa president of the ANC. It was Lutuli, it was uh, Dube, it was Josiah Kumete, it was Mahato. So we don't understand why are we being described, for instance, as a Corsa organization, except that the, 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 you know, the perception should be, well, Inkata Zulu and Corsa, I mean, and the ANC is Corsa, and that is totally untrue. So I'm just uh, you know, citing a few examples which cause us unhappiness, not disgruntlement. I don't think we're disgruntled. We've got time for about one more question in the back. Yeah, as, as you know, uh, the big business press in the United States as well as South Africa talks about, as a refrain constantly, black-on-black -black violence and so on and so forth. I was wondering if you could report to us the, any progress that has been made in the discussions between the uh, African National Congress leadership and in Katha in terms of, uh, of um, uh, fighting against the uh, uh, violence that's taking place in the townships and also any new information uh, as to uh, the role of the police and the uh, state apparatus in instigating that violence and uh, uh, finally also just the, uh, uh, any support that has been able to be won over in, I, I think it's very important what you just said about the uh, uh, statistics of support for the ANC among the Zulus, if you could go into more uh, information on that. I'm with the militant newspaper, and I want to, nice to see you and welcome you here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, unfortunately, the violence in South Africa is being described as black-on-black -black violence. One asks the question, why is it being described so? What do people want to achieve by calling violence black-on-black -black why don't you say there's violence in South Africa where people are dying and getting killed? Do we get any satisfaction when we call it black-on-black -black violence? In the past, there's been a lot of violence by the whites against us throughout the history of our country. And there's never been a phase of white violence on the blacks. Secondly, I think, you see, people should not exculpate apartheid from responsibility for dividing our society into tribal groupings. Of course, the basic motive was divide and conquer. Residentially, blacks were separated. There were Kosa section, Zulu section, Vanda section. In other words, we stoked ethnic suspicion. And also the socio-economic conditions contribute to violence. And the press is very quiet, the international press is quiet about the socio-economic conditions in our country. 
The life in the hostel is dreary and subhuman. The life in the squatter shacks where thousands of our people are staying is, is without basic facilities. No clean water, no electricity, no roads, and sometimes no basic sanitation. Put people in those conditions, whether they are white, green, or black, and there will be crime, there will be gangs. Let's say, for instance, if those people in the hostels have decent, had decent home with their families, children and wives, none of them would be going, you know, carrying sticks with red bands on their, hand, on their heads and attacking commuters as they did yesterday morning at, at Intlazane railway station in Johannesburg. I'm not saying there are no exceptions to the rule, you know, there might be a few people, but it wouldn't be a common thing. Now, coming to the question of uh, the role of the state, and I want to say there, there is no agreement, the state has categorically, de categorically denied this involvement. But people in the townships in Toboza, Katlewong, Ferenichin, the affected people have come out with stories of the presence of the whites, some whites, helping the attackers. This information has been made available to Mr. Flock and others, but they have denied. If the, I mean, they have denied the truth of uh, these allegations. But we are saying the police are not taking measures. And we understand why they are doing so as the ANC. There's the question of basic orientation for years of the South African police. They were fed on racist poison. You know, as a young person, when I saw, when I saw a police van in Langa Township, I would run for my dear life. Because uh, it was our understanding that you could be arrested for anything by the South African police. You know, one day I was sleeping at Langa Township. I just finished my university education. And it was my first experience to be in a police van. They were raiding all the townships house to house. I did not have a permit to be in Cape Town. And I had to be there. And it was 3 in the morning. Look at that humiliation. They were rounding all the townships. We finally reached the police station at 8. And I was taken to prison for not producing a reference book. In other words, a careful was not regarded as a human being. It's only a few years that the Nationalist Party has begun to say that we are human beings. And they had trained their police on that, on, on that basis. If, for instance, there was a group a demonstration, they would just wade into us with sticks, with patents and everything. That mentality is still there, not with everybody, but a big number of the police officers harbor animosity towards the ANC, the peace and other organizations. They see us as having been responsible for the death of some of their colleagues. And they, I think some of them want to settle accounts. Secondly, for a long time, where men of violence were to be destroyed in any way, and there would be no accountability. The government in South Africa has not taken major steps to re-educate that police force. Hence, you see, when blacks are, are, are killing one another, they say, oh, let them, let those kefas, let those baboons, popoyan, in Africans, let them kill one another. And apart from, as far as I'm concerned, prior statements by their leaders, I don't see a program. 
to re-educate and redirect the police. And that program can't be carried out only by the government. Other organizations, the churches, it's a major educational program. Because in, in order for the police to be effective in a community, at least they must have an acceptance rate of at least 60%, 70%. Otherwise, their work becomes difficult. And I'm not exaggerating, when a Casper appears, there are two reactions. Either you run away or you try to throw a stone at them. Because you see them as the enemy. Because they have behaved as an enemy, as an army of occupation in the past. And I think that is the major problem. If those police are going to, 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 to cope with that work, they must be overhauled, re-educated. Because unfortunately we depend on them. There's no other force in our country, at least to maintain law and order. Mr. Honey has to get on to another appointment. Thank you all very much, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. And uh, that was a rare archival audio file of uh, an interview uh, with uh, South African Communist Party leader Chris Honey, also the commander of Mkonto um, Wesizwe, the arm wing of the African National Congress. And um, that uh, press conference was held in April of 1991 uh, during his visit uh, to the United States. Uh, he was assassinated uh, two years later uh, in Boxburg, uh, South Africa. And of course, the controversy surrounding the uh, plans to parole uh, Josh Bolas, the uh, admitted assassination assassin of uh, Chris Honey. And uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
your ass prints on the pavement. Grease was melting in this brother's eyes. His profile was shot up by a Simba. Thinking it was coming around the corner was really Tony Curtis. And not a misguided brother got his mind hanging out with Italians. This particular morning, in a black section of Los Angeles, a shootout at the headquarters of the Black Panther Party. Hundreds of police moved into the area, sealing it off, ordering a school closed for the day, advising businessmen not to open at all. It began when officers armed with warrants went to the headquarters before dawn to search for weapons. They were met with gunfire. Three policemen were cut down. All are now listed in satisfactory condition. Despite repeated bullhorn orders to surrender, the eight men and three women inside held out for more than four hours. Then, one by one, they did surrender. Three had been wounded, two men and a woman. It was the first real test for the men of the Special Weapons and Tactics Group, the SWAT Squad, as it's called. Every member has a marksman's rating. They have sniper rifles, M14s, and some use the high-velocity M16, as in Vietnam. The police say they've had a series of incidents involving the Panthers recently, the latest a few nights ago, when an officer was ordered out of the Panther headquarters at gunpoint. And so, last night, after notifying the FBI and Governor Ronald Reagan, the officers went out with search warrants, looking for a machine gun believed to be owned by one of the Panthers. More than a dozen persons were arrested at a home and a Panther office a few miles away, but at the headquarters, the street became a battleground. Hundreds of rounds were fired, the police say, mostly from inside the building. The sidewalk was covered with bloodstains, spent cartridges, and broken glass. And when it was over, 11 more Panthers were in custody. Three officers were in the hospital. The neighborhood reeked with the smell of tear gas and fear. And an old man came out to clear a path through the rubble of violence. Two hours after the shootout, when the gas fumes had cleared, a look at the Panther fortress, and it was that, complete with sandbags and gun ports facing onto the street. More bloodstains and an arsenal, not a small arsenal either. 
There were two submachine guns, three sawed-off shotguns, six handguns, a dozen rifles and carbines. The office has its own loading bench for ammunition. Police officials say they went to the headquarters heavily armed because of the Panther literature, which exhorts them to abide by the essays of their imprisoned Minister of Defense, Huey Newton. The main theme, according to the police, in all that literature is violence directed at lawmen. A few blocks away, a crowd gathered on a street corner, and a force of officers moved in there, too. There were rocks and bottles thrown, there were scuffles and some arrests. Obviously, the area is tense, but there has been no further violence. Bill Stout, CBS News, Los Angeles. Today, many blacks came to the house where Fred Hampton was killed to see for themselves. They were concerned that what the Black Panthers claim, that Hampton was murdered by police in his bed as he slept, might be true. The state's attorney says that Hampton was shot to death as Panthers exchanged fire with a police raiding party which was seeking concealed weapons. But Renault Robinson and Howard Safford of the Afro-American Patrolman's League questioned this. Uh, no, there's gas that the police department uses as standard equipment that nobody can stand to stay in the room with it. They could have shot four canisters of gas in there and waited outside for everybody to come out. And this was, uh, this was planned? This was a plan to get Hampton? All indications to me, personally, that this was uh, obviously a political assassination. The ACLU went one step further, charging that the killing was part of a plot to eliminate the Panthers. Oh, I think that the government, uh, both national and locally, have decided that the um, the Black Panther Party is the kind of, as they describe themselves, the vanguard uh, revolutionary party, are marked for uh, extinction in one way or another. Now, whether that means the rest of the leadership, uh, in some situations have been the shootouts and the killing, I'm not sure uh, you know, who's the guilty party in those situations, but that one way or another the Panthers are going to be... Uh, uh, they're going to get rid of the Black Panther movement in this country. This evening, as blacks continued to come to the Hampton House, the state's attorney, Edward Hanrahan, issued a statement refuting the charge of murder, saying that his officers used good judgment, considerable restraint, and professional discipline in carrying out the raid. Ike Pappas, CBS News, Chicago. Bullet hole over there in that wall. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, this is a press conference. The subject is a Bobby Seal. We have three principals, uh, Linda Beeson Gallery, spokesman for the Black Sea Stone Nation. On my uh, far left, uh, Fred Hampton, chairman of Illinois Black Panther Party. Here, C.C. Vivian, coordinator for the United, uh, for the Coalition for United Community Action. Here, these are the three principals. My name is Fred Hampton. Yeah, you rolling? Yeah. Ready? Yeah. My name is Fred Hampton. While the fascist stormtroops award Nixon's repressive machine single out individuals such as Michael and Johnny Soto, Charles Jackson, 14-year-old boy murdered in cold blood in Ideal Gardens, the outlandish murder of Charles Cox, 
and the shameless illegal acts of violence directed against our chairman Bobby Seale after he tried only to exercise rights that some of us thought were rights guaranteed to every citizen of the land of the free and the home of the brave. In the midst of all of these acts of overt fascism, the establishment press, uh, those people in the press that make the decision of what goes in and what goes out, respond as mere apologists and uh, ideological servants of American fascism and international imperialism. If the journalists and pressmen of those people that make the decisions for the journalists and pressmen really want to become defenders of independence, how can they watch while Bobby Steele is being chained, gagged, beat about the face and head, kicked in the groins, and denied two basic constitutional rights? First, denied the right of counsel of his own choice in the name of Charles R. Gary. Second, being denied the right to defend himself. While these people that make the decisions about what goes in the media sit back with arms folded. We demand of, the, of these people in the press to come out resolutely in protest of the fascistic acts of George Adolf Hitler Hoffman. Journalists and newsmen can never remain mere recorders of facts and onlookers in fascist times. Because of this, we demand of responsible members of, of our up until now apologetic press to wield their mighty pens to right the errors that are being made by these megalomaniac fascists here at home and abroad. We ask that all people denounce these brutal acts being directed against Bobby Seale in specific, and we the people of Babylon in general, and when we say it, we mean that there's, an, there's a, a very clear case of a systematic genocide attempted to be put on the black community in the form of all of the youth in the community. If there's ever to be eternal peace in our communities, then we've got to fight and struggle relentlessly against these hangmen, hangmen like Henry Hand, who continually perpetuate violence here at home and act as warmongers abroad. If we're going to stop fascism in America, then we've certainly got to stop that hecatune down in Chicago. And we say hecatune, you look it up in the dictionary to tell you that it's a public sacrifice, it's not a trial, and that's what we call it, hecatune. Also, I'd like to read the demand that we have in our Black Panther Party paper. It says, we demand that the United States government drop the trumped-up conspiracy charges against the Conspiracy 8, and that Rennie Davis and Dave Dillinger be allowed to return to Hanoi, where they would be met by our Minister of Information, Eric Cleaver, so that the three of them could discuss with the Vietnamese the freeing of Americans now held prisoners of war in exchange for the dropping of all charges against our Minister of Defense, Huey P. Newton, and our Chairman and Leader of the Party, Bobby Sears. This, per this proposed freedom of, of political prisoners in exchange for prisoners of war could only be ignored by a government that has no concern for its poor, its peace-loving, its non-white, and its soldiers, and even less concern for peace. Also, what other thing is that this Monday we're going to be having a rally demanding uh, in general that the trial be stopped, but in specific that the chairman of the Black Panther Party, who's guilty of opening up free health clinics and guilty of opening up free breakfast programs, be ungagged and unchanged. And that will be Monday, November the 3rd at 12 o'clock noon. And we're also doing that with the support of the entire coalition and also with the support of all people in the black community that 
uh, are sensitive to this type of injustice that's being uh, placed upon any black man in the, in the, the so-called democratic society. Where is that going to be? That's going to be the federal building, 12 noon on Monday. Right, you normally call for school and we all, right, right. We're working on that right now, and we actually, we're calling the strike on school and also a strike on work. And those people in the community, we understand that some of them have to work. That have to work, we're asking them to wear black, and we're asking them to uh, drive with their lights on when they're coming home. Because this whole situation needs to be shown to the world, because it seems to us as if Bailey and the leaders of Chicago are trying to set some type of vanguard the coalition, we're concerned about what is happening in that courtroom. We see this as a matter of human dignity. Here is a man who yesterday, when finally he was able to get the gags off his face, said that he was taken into the back room and beaten. A man picked up in a chair, strapped to it, taken into the back room, beaten, gagged, and brought back into a courtroom. Uh, this is a matter of human dignity, and such indignities we have not seen in an American courtroom. And we fear that this can be the beginning of a long line of such cases that leads to fascism in America. This is a legal matter, as we see a judge not allowing uh, legal options to a man whose lawyer happens to be ill. If in fact that cannot happen, that he can be there to defend himself, at least this man could speak for himself if he desires that right. Basic human rights are being taken away by the kind of trial that we seek. Our concern is for First Amendment rights. We see things like the House Un-American Activities Committee changing its name so they can do its own diabolical acts. We begin to see things like this here in Chicago, where the conspiracy we believe is a trumped-up charge, that it is a matter of the right forming itself in a way to stop all dissent. And our kind of faith says that dissent is basic to a democracy, is basic to the America that we all see as the land of the free and the real home of the truly brave. This courtroom scene is a symbol to every black man. There are black people in Chicago that cannot sleep at night, literally, because they see themselves as Bobby Seale. They see themselves gagged in a courtroom. This is a symbol to every one of us. Black men in our courts are gagged. Black men in our courts do not feel as though there is any justice. Black men in our courts, whenever case they come, feel that judges do not understand and are without mercy. And we, no black man, could stand aside and watch this happen before us as a picture of the reality of the injustice of the court system against black people and not speak out. We have come to demand an end to the conspiracy trials, but definitely uh, a humane treatment of Bobby Seale and that justice comes and that the legal options be given him. <clears throat> My name is Leonard B. Sengali. I represent the Black Peace Stone Nation. With the permission of Jeff Ford, I'm here today to let the world know that we stand behind the Black Panther Party and the inhuman treatment being given to Bobby Seale. First, we'd like to bring it to the attention that this transcends ideology and philosophy. We're putting them in the closet to deal with this here problem in, in our city. First of all, the man is not being tried by his peers, which is a constitutional law. He's been tried by people that's insensitive, 
to the problems of black people. Therefore, we have resolved to throw all that we got into demonstration of whatever it'll take to wake up the conscience of America to the realization that black people will not be walked on and stepped. As we see Bobby Seale, we see Jeff Ford, we see each and every brother in the black community chained to that chair and gag. And we want the world to know that over and above all ideologies, first and at last, we are black and stone power to the people. I have one uh, question. Uh, I take it all of you gentlemen are aware of the fact that Mr. Seal was given the opportunity. Yeah, there's one more statement. Oh, there is? Mm -hmm. Yes. I, my name is Ricky Reed. Step forward, Ricky. My name is Ricky Reed. I say your last name. R double -E D. And I'm here to represent the Virus Lord Nation. And I would also like to serve notice to the racists and the conservative elements of our government that the Virus Lord Nation and other elements of the black society youth are not gonna stand by and watch black men be trialed in kangaroo court by carpetbagged tactics who want to serve notice to the whole community, the nation, that we are behind any decision that the coalition and the Black Panther Party make. The Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, realizing that hunger is still running rampant in our communities, has started other free breakfast for children programs. One is here at the Holy Trinity Church, 4831 South State Street. The other one is on Western and Jackson at the Western uh, Jackson Boulevard Church. Everyone knows that our children are growing up sickly because of the lack of nourishing food. Mayor Daly knows this, but all he does is print surveys and reports. Children can't eat statistics. The Black Panther Party was formed to meet the needs of the people, and we feed over 5,000 children a week at three other centers before we had school was out. One of the main functions of the Black Panther Party is to educate and teach the people. Along with our breakfast, we have a liberation school to tell Nixon and Daley why they can spend from why they can spend our tax money, billions of dollars, and send some fools to the moon and can't even feed our hungry children. The Black Panther Party says when the summer ends, our breakfast children program will continue. And by the time September comes, we hope to have a breakfast children program not only on the south side and the west side, but all throughout the Chicagoland area, not only in the black communities, but in the white communities and the Puerto Rican communities as well. What takes place here? What are the children taught and what does the pro program consist of? Uh, basically, we start off teaching them the 10-point program in the main uh, line of the Black Panther Party and uh, trying to get them to relate to some uh, revolutionary heroes such as Huey P. Newton, Little Bobby Hutton, Eldridge Cleveland, things like this. Do you have the support of the local community in these efforts? Right on, we certainly do. In what way? Uh, money? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, since the community is not a wealthy community, we don't get too much money from them, but as far as participation in the program, we certainly do have that. Also, we have party members that live in this uh, media community, along with the uh, passing community, uh, people support, the program is able to go on. How is the program financed? The program is financed through the average businessmen and the uh, demagogic politicians constantly exploiting and oppress the black communities. We feel that 
stores are in our communities, that they must be relevant to our communities. And if they cannot be relevant to our communities, then they must go. There was some writing on the blackboard in the classroom that I saw, and it said uh, 100 pigs plus three panthers equals a barbecue. And there were drawings of shooting of the police around. Is that what is taught, basically, or is that just one facet? This is only one facet of what's taught. The main thing for this is uh, we want to teach the people, along with the children and their parents, the true enemy of the people. Not only the pig power structure, but as Sam here said, the average businessmen and demagogic politicians. What's your attitude toward the Chicago Police Department? Our attitude toward the Chicago Police Department is that uh, we feel that the police department is in our communities that they're supposed to do justice is uh, roll on their car. They're supposed to serve and protect the people in the community, not brutalize and intimidate the people in the community. And as long as they continue to run rampant in our communities, we'll continue to try and exhaust all means to organize the people for the purpose of self-defense. In other words, the pigs can't become relevant to the community, and they must be driven out of the community. This is the whole purpose for our united front against fascism, which is basically talking about community control of the police. What is your reaction to the shootout on Madison Street? Well, I don't know too much about the incident because I haven't had time to get down to the office. But obviously, it's another tactic by the pigs to try to harass and intimidate the Black Panther Party. We in the Black Panther Party understand that as we serve the people, that we also must protect and defend ourselves and the people. And we will not allow the pigs to run in our office rampant anymore. And that's how come they got what they got. They got. Right on. Right on. I would say a number of people would think or believe that the main goal of the Black Panther Party is to kill. As far as we're concerned, it's just one of the tools used by society to suppress the people. There are also blacks who say that the Black Panther Party terrorizes the black community. Any black person that says that is uh, obviously not understood the Black Panther Party and has not had any contact with the Black Panther Party because if you check with the masses of the people, you will see and you can check our records and see the type of support that we have from the Black Panther Party and the type of programs, not only feeding children, but we have uh, people come in our office daily asking for help, help asking us to help them find apartments to live in, uh, clothing, food, and anybody that says they are being brutalized by the Black Panther Party is a lie unless they are pigs. In view of the charges that you've made, what sort of changes would you like to have in police operations? Well, like I said before, I mentioned the United Front Against Fascists. We in the Black Panther Party feel that, that the policemen should be controlled by the community. And if the policemen cannot be controlled by the community and are continually controlled by the pig power structure, and then it should not be allowed to run rampant in the community. Basically, community control of the police is what we're asking for now and uh, will be taken to the people. In a couple of months, maybe about three or four months, uh, we will have another conference and we will set up a structure for uh, setting up uh, registered voters where the people can come and vote for community control of the police. And this is basically what we're talking about. And you claim that the Black Panther Party represents the community? The Black Panther Party Black definitely does. represents the community. Yeah. If it didn't represent the community, the community would not allow us to come in. This uh, new free breakfast for children program that you're sen uh, setting up, is that a result of uh, your recent national conference in uh, Oakland? Is that a change in the emphasis uh, in the Black Panther Party? Uh, we've been feeding hungry kids all along. 
before the conference started. This is not a change that came out as a result of the conference. But, but the fact that you're setting up another one and you expect to set up other we programs. Would have, we would have set up other programs even if the United Front Against Fascism wasn't uh, implemented. Because we understand there's uh, a need for uh, hungry kids to be fed. We understand that there's medical attention needed in the black community. And we understand that the black community needs as much help as possible and as fast as possible. We understand that the politicians, that the people who claim that they represent the people, are not relevant to the people. So therefore, it's our job as Black Panther Party and our job as people to go out there and meet our needs. Well, it would seem that the uh, police are completely in the wrong We've drawn a clear line of demarcation between the people and the enemy, and it's up to the police department, the individuals on the police department who may feel that they don't fit into the category of pigs to decide what side they want to be on. And uh, we say the political level of the people has been heightened to such an extent that it means a whole lot more to be on a police department now than just uh, running around in a little blue car. The social aspect and the political aspect of being a policeman nowadays is such that uh, they understand fully what they're doing, and the choice is up to them. And they can either stay on the side of the uh, United States government, or they can come on the side of the people. Are there any police associations that you are cooperative with? Uh, like what? The Afro-American Patrolman's League. Uh, we have no ties with any police department or any police department organization. Well, how can you ever uh, reach any... Or any situation with, with the police department where you can end the violence and the uh, misunderstandings between the two organizations. The problem does not lie within the police department. The problem, as I tried to state before, lies in the government, lies in the type of system that we exist in. The police department basically is a tool used by the power structure to oppress uh, black people and oppress all oppressed people throughout the community. So therefore, our argument is not against the police department. Our argument is against the type of system that we live in that perpetuates this type of uh, action in our communities. What you want here then in Chicago is revolution. Well, what we want to do is educate the people to the correct means of resisting the power structure by any means necessary. And after they're educated, what? That's up to the people. See, we cannot make any decisions for the people. Our job is to educate the people and raise their political consciousness so they can actively participate and make a decision as to how their lives should be run and how their communities should be controlled. But violence is uh, one tool that you would use. We do, not implement, we do not implement violence. We do not say for black people to go out and uh, open fire on the police. We do not never tell black people or oppressed people to do anything that the There's black country is right over there that shows a policeman being shot. That's not saying we're telling them to go out and just, uh, without any plan of action, open fire on the police department. We say by any means necessary. Would you consider if shooting policemen necessary? If the situation calls for it. What situation? Any situation that calls for it. We say any means necessary through all, exhausting all legal means from there on in. If, as you say, you are, you are against violence, why is it that the Black Panther Party is constantly on the uh, defensive? when it comes to situations like this? Because that's what we are. We're basically a self-defense organization. If you understand the nature of a panther, you understand the nature of the Black Panther Party. But, no, what I mean is, why is it that you're, you're constantly being involved in shooting incidents with the police, 
uh, in incidents of that nature. See, the reason for this is because we understand that any time you try to raise the political level of oppressed people, that you always receive uh, repression from the government. The government Mayor Daly and his gang, and uh, this is uh, just another conspiracy by uh, the so-called power structure to destroy the People's Party, the Black Panther Party. This is all it is. It's a conspiracy to destroy those who are trying to do something for the people. That's all it is. Mike Lasky, you were uh, on a recent uh, television show, and at that time you also used the word conspiracy. What did you mean by that, and how do you reflect on that right now? Well, it's just very clear that... Um, that uh, the power structure in this country is uh, waging a, is conspiring and waging an attack on the people, on all the people's organizations, uh, because organizations like the Black Panther Party are uh, fighting to meet the needs of the people. Uh, this is this is the richest country in the world, and there's uh, thousands of hungry people right here in the city of Chicago. The, the power structure is willing to spend money on uh, war in Vietnam, on uh, on. Uh, um, trying to destroy people fighting for liberation, but they won't feed their own people right here in, the, in this city. When the Black Panther Party moves to, with the Breakfast for Children program to try and feed young children who, who uh, never get a breakfast before they go to school, uh, the contradictions become clear to the people, and the people understand that uh, this country cannot meet the needs of its people. This system of uh, capitalism cannot meet the needs of the people in any way. And so um, any organizations fighting for people's liberation or fighting to serve the people, like SDS, like the Black Panther Party, like the Young Lords, Young Patriots, uh, they're feeling the brunt of uh, fascism in this country. Fascism comes about when uh, capitalism cannot cannot meet the needs of its own people. Do you see a pattern in this kind of thing? First it happened to you, now it's happening. You predicted that it would happen to your organization. Now it seems to be happening at least right here at this spot. Is there a pattern behind all this? Well, uh, sure. Uh, as you can see from last night, uh, the pattern developing uh, is attack on all, on all uh, uh, organizations. Um, that, that I, like I said, we're fighting for people's liberation. However, throughout the history of this country, it has always hit much harder on the black liberation struggle. Um, the, the colonized people have always uh, faced the hardest brunt of, of fascist repression. Black people have been living under fascism in this country for hundreds of years now. And uh, it's only when uh, organizations like SDS and, and when white people uh, begin to see the need to fight against this white supremacist system and this racist system that, uh, that they begin feeling it too. Like in Berkeley, California, where, where a struggle was made to... Uh, to um, uh, link up struggles between uh, uh, white working people and, and, uh, and black people that uh, they open fire on a crowd of white students too so uh, uh, fascism will come anytime that, um, that um, will hit on all people anytime that uh, uh, the contradictions in the system of racism and the war in Vietnam uh, begin making themselves clear and um, so I think there is definitely a pattern. I think it, uh, it's very clear that they're going to start moving much harder because they're afraid. They're afraid of what we're saying. They're afraid of what we're doing. And uh, it, it's becoming more clear to uh, large masses of people exactly what this country is all about. When that happens, uh, the only way they can respond is with concentration camps, fascist tactics, just like they did in Nazi Germany. This, don't, people think that uh, people are very quick to condemn the Nazis in, in Germany, but uh, what, what this country is doing, what the power structure of this country is doing to uh, people around the world makes Hitler look like small time. I was, yeah, let me say this there, that uh, Black Panther Party is a primary self-defense organization. And the reason I say this here is because uh, through some mistake, the rooms where the arms are kept and the office there was locked. And if these, if these armed robbers come again, the office won't be locked. Right on. And uh, the people right are going to uh, 
protect this office. They're going to protect their lives. Right on. And at the same time, you can see the taxes that the pigs use. They come at 535 in the morning because they never come when they know most of the pastors are here, when the people in the community is up and down the street. But we know for a fact that uh, there's no struggle that the pastors will get involved in, that the people in this here community won't be involved in. Did they ever give you a description of the man they were looking for, or was it a man? They said it was a man. They said a man uh, all the way from uh, New Haven, Connecticut somewhere. And, uh, we didn't have no description of it, no. Did they tell you why they were looking for him? No, they didn't tell us nothing. Uh, like I say, from what I, you know, everything that I know is from what I got, you know, out of the FBI press release. This is what I know. Do you see this as part of a pattern, a nationwide pattern? Yeah, I see it uh, as a part of a nationwide pattern. But uh, the pig power is going to have to understand that they can't destroy the Black Panther Party. They can jail everybody in the party right now, kill everybody in the party right now. But I think that the uh, Black Panther Party has did their basic homework as far as educating the masses of the people, and it'll be somebody else who starts the Black Panther Party. Bobby, why'd you turn yourself in? Because I'm not guilty of anything. What was you? What were you charged with? I think it was what unlawful use of unlawful use of weapons. Do you think that if you had been, do you think if you had been in your apartment yesterday, you would have been shot by police? Yes, I would have been murdered. I still think there's a, a great possibility of uh, people trying to murder me, and I'm gonna take all the necessary precautions. So you went underground. I said that I'm gonna take all the necessary precautions. What do those precautions include? Just protecting himself from anybody hurting him. That's all. What's going to happen now? What's the next move between the Panthers and the police here? We haven't decided that yet. Uh, all the moves uh, in the past, the initiative has been on the part of the police. Uh, they've murdered Fred Hampton. They're apparent to the Illinois branch of the Panther Party. Are you the commander now? Yes, sir. What will we see uh, when we look for yeah, Panthers like now? Will they go underground? Will the whole group go underground? Or will, will there be some form of the Panthers? Uh, I wouldn't know at this stage. We haven't decided anything about that yet. Yeah. I don't think, uh, no, we, they can't force us, un force us underground. We will not be forced underground until the, uh, to the people, we really feel satisfied that we've done our duty, uh, performed our duty to uh, educate the masses of people to the injustices that the power structure inflicts upon poor people in this country. Bobby, you said the time is going to come when the people are going to take over the power. How do you think this is going to happen? What are you it's, predicting? It's happening now. Uh, the moratorium was a strong evidence of, uh, evidence of this. Uh, all the uh, mass demonstrations that young people uh, endorse that this is happening right now. This going to be by violent means, you mean, this people? Uh, I won't... I can't determine because I'm not a uh, uh, someone who looks into a looking glass or, or uh, and get the uh, something that's going to happen in the future. I say that people decide for themselves, or either the power structure decides whether it's going to be violent or non-violent. We haven't defined no no tactics. Uh, the pigs uh, they're defined their tactics. They uh, violently uh, attack innocent, poor, unarmed people. They murder uh, leaders and. Uh, uh, they, they are defining the tactics that's going to be employed. Bobby, how strong is the Black Panther Party here in Illinois? It's very strong, and it's even stronger now uh, since the death of our chairman, Fred Hampton. How many members would you say you have? Uh, we don't, our, we don't uh, regard our uh, strength as in numbers. We regard as more uh, revolutionary fibers and support of the people. Some people think that the leadership has been weakened because some of the many of the leaders are in prison or they're slain. Uh, that's the uh, attitude that the... Uh, power structure uh, like to uh, 
propagandized to the people, but that's uh, together all erroneous. Uh, when they tried to murder Malcolm, then what happened? Eldridge, Malcolm, Huey P. Newton, Fred Hampton, and all other leaders sprung up, and this is what's going to happen in the future. There are going to be millions and millions of uh, people who are responsive to uh, uh, to the people. So you are right. predicting violent revolution right now, you know? I'm not predicting no violent revolution. If you understand my, the question that you asked and my answer, then it would take a, a whole lot of uh, uh, dumbness and foolishness out of you to say that it was violence in, in, in that at all. Mr. Rice, what uh, plans do you have for the building where uh, Mr. Hampton met his death? You've been using that uh, in the past as an exhibit to uh, to support your feeling that he's it's the, it's the, this is the, this is people's property. If they want to keep the building, if they want to go in there and look at the murder that the, uh, uh, that was committed by uh, uh, the pigs and the power structure, then it's their responsibility and their freedom to do that. They can do whatever they want to do with that building because uh, they can kill a revolutionary, but they can't kill a revolution. This morning, Bill Hampton made autopsy reports support the claim that Fred was murdered. Yes, autopsy support. Report supports the claim that Fred Hampton was murdered. Uh, we have the autopsy reports that it was uh, affirmed last night that Fred Hampton was murdered while he was laying in his bed. He was shot through the head. You're saying he was not firing back? He was in the bed sleep when he was murdered. There was uh, no weapon in his hand? There was no weapon in his hand whatsoever. Is this the uh, information that uh, young Hampton, his brother, was speaking about this morning? Yes, I think it was. It is the information. Will you uh, keep your offices open now, the, the office that you do have on... Uh, uh, yes, so that office is open. That office is a people's office. We are the people's servants, and we are there to be there to serve the people. Whatever, uh, uh, when death surprises them, we uh, we continue. Bobby, what's the next move for you personally? Uh, I haven't. My, I'm. It's no personal in, anymore. I'm the people's man, so I do whatever the people decide. It's nothing personal about it whatsoever. Mr. Rush, do you think there was any particular thing meant by the disclosure last night that uh, Alderman Sammy Rayner is uh, uh, part leasy with you on that of that property? Yes, uh, Henry Han is really dealing in his uh, down in his trick bags, trying to find a, to uh, imply to the people that uh, that. Uh, People who are elected by uh, by the people, uh, our elected representatives are, are in cahoots with the Panthers, and uh, that the Panthers are so wrong. But to, uh, people understand that, and uh, he would be surprised uh, who uh, uh, who else is involved. As far as uh, I think, uh, maybe uh, uh, some of the people who he uh, himself supposedly represents. Uh, are, they do believe that the people are uh, oppressed and that the people should have their freedom and these people are, you know... Are you saying then that, that this was a sign, a show, that uh, Alderman Rayner was, uh, was relating to his constituency? Yes, this is a very concrete uh, example of Alderman Rayner relating to his constituency. Is, uh, uh, we haven't done nothing wrong. We implemented our free breakfast programs. We uh, 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 developing a free medical clinic, and uh, we give food out to people free. We uh, so I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, it's similar to uh, Jesus Christ in, in Rome. Bobby, do you fear for your life now? Uh, Along those lines, Mr. Rice, one of the things that uh, needs to be cleared up or seems to need to be cleared up is the fact that uh, are you uh, a, a, a separatist group? Are you a group of militants? What is the nature of the Black Panther Party? The Black Panther Party is a, a revolutionary organization. We believe in uh, all power to the people. That, that uh, and within itself would say that we're not separatists, or we're not. Uh, we don't consider ourselves as being militant. We're revolutionary. We want change, uh, and uh, we endorse change on 
all ethnic groups, every everybody, everybody should have freedom to determine their own destiny. Do you fear for your life, by Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, developments uh, surrounding uh, the assassination of uh, Fred Hampton uh, in uh, December 4th of 1969, along with Mark Clark. And uh, that's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African News, why just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Eric Dolphy with the album Far Cry. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off. Have a beautiful week. Thank you.